I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. To start off the show, I'm super lucky to be joined in the studio by Andy Ratcliffe, who's the CEO of Wealthfront and the founder, co-founder of Benchmark, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Andy, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're actually about the same age. I'm sorry, embarrassed to admit that. We're And we won't say how old that is. <laughs> I'm happy to say. All right. But, you know, I, I was looking at your bio and, and I was thinking in 1976, the last thing on my mind would have been that I want to go to, to business school. And, and you, you decided to head off to the Wharton School to study as an undergraduate. Tell me about your, your background and how you, how, you got, how you decided Wharton was the place for you. Well, it actually has to do with my family. So my, uh, neither of my parents went to college. My father was the youngest of five children, and he got into Wharton but at the last minute, he couldn't go because his family needed the money. Wow. And so that was, uh, he was born in 1913. So that would have been 1931 during the Depression. Wow. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in northern New Jersey, uh-huh. just outside of New York. Yeah. So uh, it, I had always heard the story about how my father had applied and gotten in, but didn't go. And then he went on uh, to start a Uh, an industrial dry cleaner with three of his brothers Mm -hmm. and then uh, in Massachusetts in Western Massachusetts and then moved to New Jersey and started a uh, textile company first that focused on dyeing fabric and then knitting fabric. And I always assumed that I would go to work for him. Yeah. And so I thought the fastest path to get educated to work for him was to go to business school as an undergraduate And that's why I chose Wharton. And what I didn't anticipate was that my love of computers would also lead me at the same time to study computer science. And actually, that was the greater interest of the two. Interesting. So I looked at your... The problem with being our age is you sort of can't fit all the things you've done in your life on your LinkedIn page. But, <laughs> but if I were to parse the LinkedIn page, there are I would I would think of it as sort of three chunks. And I know a fair bit about the second two chunks. One was Benchmark, which we're going to talk about, and the mm-hmm. other is Wealthfront, which we're in the middle of now. But but tell me about the period after graduation, and you could start where you want. You also went to Stanford Business School and got an MBA, so maybe from when you got out of Stanford Business School to when you started Benchmark, or however you'd like to think about it, what did that first chunk of your career look like? Well, actually, just before I graduated from college, I chose not to go to work for my dad. Wow. Because there were a bunch of kids in my class who were also in the same position who went to Wharton because they wanted a business education so they could go into their family business. And they actually didn't work all that hard. And I never wanted to be compared to them. Yeah. So I decided I needed to go out on my own. And uh, I had uh, studied finance and computer science. This was before there was a management and technology program. Right between the Wharton School and the engineering school where you got a joint degree in the two uh, subjects. So I sort of created my own. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, I actually first pursued a career as a software developer. Wow. So I wanted to live in Manhattan. I grew up about half an hour outside of New York and it was always a goal to live there, which is why I wanted to go to a city school also at Penn. 
and I uh, first interviewed for software development jobs in New York, and they were all time-sharing bureaus that served the financial services industry. But they all treated programmers, as they called them, like crap. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I didn't want to do that. So I got a very late start and uh, reached out to the investment banks and got a job as a financial analyst, landed a job at one of the top then top firms called Blythe Eastman Dillon, who actually was the leader in providing investment banking services to technology companies. And I was given an amazing opportunity because I was the only guy in the M&A department who actually understood what the companies did Ah. because of my technical background. And I met some folks who uh, helped me learn about venture capital. I realized that's really what I wanted to pursue. The head of our department had gone to Stanford he and others encouraged me to apply to go out there to get closer to the venture community. I was really lucky to do it. When I got into Stanford Graduate School of Business, I immediately started looking for a job in the venture business while I was going to school because that was the whole goal. Yeah. And uh, I, was, uh, I, I got a lot of lucky breaks all along the way, but uh, someone introduced me to uh, to a number of venture capital firms. They didn't want to hire me because they didn't have an operating background because I had worked in investment banking and there could be nothing worse in Silicon Valley. Even than, though that those guys are important for them to make money. Yeah, but they're <laughs> not highly valued. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I actually was introduced to the first crossover firm. That means a, a, an investment firm that invests in both pu- public and private technology hmm. firms. They invest in... Uh, they look at private companies to make better decisions about public investments and vice versa. And I learned a lot about investing in tech that way. When I graduated from business school, I decided I wanted to go to earlier stage investing. So I, again, I didn't have an operating background. So I had a choice between a second and a third tier firm. I chose the third tier firm because I liked the people better, mm-hmm. worked there for about a year and a half, and then got another lucky break through some friends and introduction to one of the top five firms. And in the venture business, the top five firms generate a very disproportionate percentage of the returns. Yeah. It's almost like an oligopoly. Yeah. And so I, I was really fortunate to get a job at Merrill Pickard Anderson and Iyer, started as an associate, became a partner, worked there for 10 years, and then one of my partners at Merrill Pickard and I teamed up with three other guys and started Benchmark in 1995, did that for 10 years, then retired to teach at, uh, at Stanford Graduate School of Business to become a trustee at Penn, where I've become really, really involved. My wife and I started a, an innovative cancer research funding initiative. And Wealthfront happened by accident based on the experience I had sitting on the Penn Endowment Investment Board. Wow. Okay. So this is really interesting. You've given us a nice arc for our hour together because I want to go through some of these chunks in more detail. So let's talk about Benchmark. Sure. And, and why don't we start with a, a little bit. You you probably won't frame it this way, but but I will brag a little bit about Benchmark for the few listeners who have not don't know about Benchmark. But Benchmark has among the highest returns in the entire venture industry, returning, depending on which years you look at, you know, more than 10 times what investors put in. And and so has had an amazing success record, including including portfolio companies like Dropbox, Twitter, Uber, Snapchat, Instagram. I mean, and those are only the more recent of them. Uh, So an amazing, amazing venture fund. 
What was the thesis? What was the key idea behind Benchmark when you when you started it? And why did you think you could do something different? Well, three of the five founders had been partners at two of the top five firms in the venture businesses. And as I said before, there's a, a disproportionate percentage of the returns mm-hmm. come from the top five firms. Now, we all had done very well financially in those two firms. But the thing that brought us together and the other two guys who are our co-founders was a desire to build the best firm in the business. Mm -hmm. The five of us were very competitive Mm -hmm. people and we didn't want to just do well financially, we wanted to win. And we didn't feel like we could take our old platforms to the number one position because they had long ingrained cultures uh, and there were some elements to those cultures that we thought could get in the way of, of doing what was necessary because you have to break the rules to win. And, and honestly, the founding partners still wanted to play a role and have equity, and we thought that we needed to start with a clean sheet of paper to build the best firm in the business. And we ultimately created an organizational structure that I don't think has been copied since, and it was the key to our success. Okay, so tell us what it was. You start with a clean sheet. What does benchmark look like if, when, after, as a result of your thinking about the ideal structure for you and for a venture fund? Well, we took the advice that we give to our portfolio companies, which is pick the company that you consider your greatest competitor and turn their greatest strengths into their greatest weaknesses. So in 1995, by far the best venture capital firm in the business was Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. And they had two tremendous strengths. Number one, they had the world's greatest venture capitalist, a fellow named John Doerr, who I think will go down in history as the best there ever was. And number two, they had a reputation for helping their portfolio companies work with one another. So when you're first getting started, having that kind of unfair advantage in terms of a potential partner uh, is, a, is of tremendous value. You mean for the startup? For the startup. Yeah. So many, port- many entrepreneurs wanted to be backed by Kleiner for the opportunity to get that lift from working with other Kleiner Perkins portfolio companies. So how can you turn that into a weakness for them? Well, the... You turn the the challenge with John Doerr is he's the world's greatest venture capitalist. He can only do about two deals a year. Ah. He had fantastic partners, but entrepreneurs were terribly disappointed if they didn't get John to do their deal. So we decided to combat individual with team. Mm. So we had to field a team that was outstanding, where everyone was outstanding. And the idea that drew us all together was the idea of building an always equal partnership. Hmm. Internally, we referred to it as communist capitalism <laughs> because each of the five of us could have started our own venture capital firm and owned a disproportionate percentage of the economics. But that's not what motivated us. Mm-hmm. What motivated us was to build the best firm, mm-hmm. and to do that, we had to build the best team. And that has served us unbelievably well because all things being equal, you're only as good as the partners in the firm. And if someone had a choice of joining us as a partner, as an equal versus someone else's firm as a junior partner, we win every time. Yeah, And I would argue that the people who are partners of Benchmark today are better than the founders of the firm were, which was our whole goal. And so that allowed us to win a lot of competitive situations. 
And then with regard to what Kleiner referred to as their Koretsu, their network of portfolio companies, we found that many entrepreneurs start companies specifically because they don't want to be told what to do. Ah. Now, the downside, one's greatest strength is always one's greatest weakness. So the downside of the Koretsu was that Kleiner would sort of push their companies to work together when it mm. wasn't necessarily always in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And we played on that and made a point to uh, in marketing our firm to entrepreneurs that we believed that they were the star and we were the stagehand, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Kleiner really sort of took the other position mm -hmm. where we would never take the position of chairman because we thought that connoted a level of importance to the venture capitalist that was inappropriate. Kleiner usually took the title of chairman mm. when they were on the board of directors. So the combination of team and uh, putting the, the entrepreneur first were the two core things that helped us. Mm -hmm. So say a little bit about that team structure. Were these people that were already like brothers, how much did you trust them? going into this versus, I mean, how much of a risk were you taking in forming that kind of partnership? I guess significant. Mm -hmm. uh, with, without risk, there's no return. Sure. So yeah. I believe in taking risk, but it has to be reasoned mm -hmm. risk. So if I think about the founding team, uh, Bruce Dunleavy and I had been partners for a ten, almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. We'd gone to business school together. Mm -hmm. So we knew each other for 13 years. Uh, uh, Kevin Harvey was an entrepreneur that Bruce had backed at Merrill Pickard, who was one of our best entrepreneurs. We would have hired him into Merrill Pickard had we not left to start Benchmark. He was superb, so I knew Kevin really mm -hmm. well. Bob Cagle was a partner at TVI. Bob had hired Bruce when we were uh, for his uh, summer internship between years at business school. So Bob then had worked at BCG, he figured out that Bruce was the best person in our class. And with consulting, you try to figure out the right. lead dog to yep. try to get other people. So Bruce and Bob were really close. Bob had been trying to rec – I recruited Bruce to Merrill Pickard because mm -hmm. I knew how great he was. Bob was trying to recruit Bruce away from Merrill Pickard to TVI. So those two were close, even though I didn't know Bob very well. And then Bob brought another fellow to the party named Val Vaden that he knew well. So uh, I trusted Bruce's relationship with Bob. Val, uh, we didn't know very well, and unfortunately, he didn't work out. So oh, he left after a year and a yeah. half. Yeah. But but the the team dynamics were better than we ever could have hoped. Yeah. Probably it, because we never discussed economics. There was no competition. Easy. 20% each. Right. <laughs> so you couldn't get ahead yeah. by doing better deals, which yeah. is how a typical yeah. venture firm Interesting. worked. Yeah. So you take all of those politics out of the discussion yeah. and you focus all your efforts on trying to find the best investments. Yeah. It leads to a much nicer interpersonal relationship. Um, amazing. Andy, just thinking quickly about those first few years, say the first five or, or, or so, 10 years at, 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 at Benchmark, what were what are the investments you're, you're proudest of? And, and tell me a little bit about your anti-portfolio. What were some you passed on that you can't believe you, you passed on? Yeah. Personally or as a firm? Well, you, you were a team, right? Yeah. So I, either way, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the, the company we were best known for early on was eBay, mm -hmm. which I think was the single most successful venture investment of all time. Wow. I think okay. we invested $6 million and it went on to be worth about 
uh, $6 billion. What? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was a crazy one. And the fund, and that fund, that first fund, had other amazing companies like Ariba, which grew to be worth over a billion dollars to our limited partners. Uh, Juniper Networks, a company that I was involved mm -hmm. with that was worth over half a billion dollars. Uh, Red Hat, the operating system company, the Linux company, that was worth between half a billion and a billion dollars. So it was the largest uh, wow. returning fund, I think, in the history of venture wow. capital. Wow. So we had, we had a lot of really good ones. The one that got away, and we, we agonize a lot more over the ones that we don't do yeah. that succeed than the ones that we did that failed, because you can only lose one times your money, yeah. but the opportunity cost on missing the great one kills you. And so the, the one that got away in my tenure was Google, where we, we turned that down. Wow. <laughs> and what were you thinking? Well, I know you were thinking. It's we two clearly grad, two had grad no students. Yeah. No, two grad students is a good thing. Yeah. But, but there were a bunch of, of issues at the time that led us not to take that leap. And Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia did, and they were handsomely rewarded for doing it. Wow. Those are, those are great stories. Um, so I, I want to just ask... Um, a couple things about the venture capital industry. In in what ways has it really changed in in say the 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 twenty years since since you were doing this? The most radical change I think resulted from the shift from hardware to software. So you in particular will appreciate this given your background. Twenty years ago, I would say that we primarily invested in companies that had high technical risk and low market risk. Mm -hmm. They were instances of, if you really could do what you said you could, then you knew the dogs would eat the dog food. Yeah. So if you could build a processor with 10 times the performance for the same price, or 10 times the storage capacity, or a 10th the late latency, or a 10 times the bandwidth, you knew that people were gonna buy that. Mm -hmm. The question is, could you really build that. Mm -hmm. And so we developed expertise at trying to determine whether or not the team was capable of delivering on their vision. Mm -hmm. Did they have an intellectual property advantage and could they actually deliver on what they said they mm -hmm. could? And in those days, we were the first investor in the company. We typically invested at a, a valuation on the order of magnitude of $5 million, hoping the company would be worth $500 million in which case we would make 20 to 30 times our money. We mm -hmm. didn't make 100 because of the dilution that came from the capital that was invested in the companies. So that was the game. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, and software became the dominant technology of startups. Well, with software, you know that you can build what you say you can. The question is, does anyone want it? Ah. So that means... The trade-off shifted from high technical risk, low market risk, mm. to low technical risk, high market mm. risk. And what kills our companies is lack of market, not lack of execution. Mm. So the worst risk you can possibly take is market risk. Well, the venture community reacted to this, the premier firms mm -hmm. in the venture community reacted to this by outsourcing the funding of the startup stage to angels. Interesting. Let them yeah. take the market risk, which is a sucker's bet. Mm -hmm. 
So the returns on angel investing are actually horrible. Everyone loves, it's like a fishing story. You love to tell the story about the, the big fish that you caught, but the average returns are horrible, especially given the risk. So the venture community outsourced that to the angel community, and then they look to provide the next round of financing at a higher price for the mm -hmm. companies that actually proved the dogs wanted to eat the dog food, mm -hmm. that had eliminated the market risk. So what that meant is order of magnitude, the venture industry moved to investing at a $50 million pre-money valuation, hoping the company would be worth $5 billion. Mm. Because interestingly, with the advent of the internet, markets, market sizes increased by an order of magnitude which meant that the number of companies worth $5 billion today are comparable to the number of companies worth $500 million wow. 20 years ago. Wow. So you can make the same 20 to 30x return mm -hmm. investing at a much higher valuation as you could when you invested at the low price before, which is why the premier firms are still generating incredible returns despite having moved a little bit later stage. And suckers like me are funding the uh, are funding the angel investments. It's not a good idea. <laughs> it's so fun though, Andy. It's so fun. Which is why people do yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. I we're I, I want to talk about the next phase, but before I do, I want to ask you uh, uh, a hard question. You know, we we've seen a, a, in the last few weeks, really, in the venture industry, some real crises around gender issues, and I wonder if you can just reflect. I mean, you're now some distance from it. If you can reflect. And, and you mentioned John Doerr and, and Kleiner, who has had a really tough stretch uh, because of some of the issues that have been raised in the last few weeks uh, and months, really, in the venture industry, particularly in Silicon Valley. What are your thoughts What as you reflect on, uh, ha, was there a problem and, and are there still problems and what can we do about it? To what specifically are you referring when you say, was there a problem? Well, I suppose the specific allegations have been that Two, twofold. The first is that venture capitalists, although not in an employer-employee relationship with entrepreneurs, are in a power asymmetry. And there have been a predominantly male industry in which female entrepreneurs have, been, have felt that venture capitalists have used that power for essentially for, for personal uh, 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 purposes. Mm. So that's the allegation. And then the second allegation is just it's an old boys network that is inaccessible to to accomplished women well uh, the latter i just don't agree with okay. at all we yeah. backed a number of women who were entrepreneurs over the years mm -hmm. we're, we're agnostic we're just looking for companies that have great returns yes yeah. so i i don't understand that you know there when the business was highly technical mm -hmm. when it was hardware driven mm -hmm. there were there weren't very many female electrical engineers which is the prominent and necessary background for a founder of the company. You know, we venture capitalists much prefer technical bounder, uh, mm -hmm. founders. Mm -hmm. And that's because what you find among the great companies, mm -hmm. th what actually leads to really great successes is the opposite of what you read about entrepreneurship mm -hmm. in the popular press or in books. So I think the common perception about entrepreneurship is that it results from an individual looking at a market, finding a problem, and developing a solution. Mm -hmm. That leads to really mundane outcomes. Mm. And it doesn't support the kind of returns necessary for venture capital. In contrast, the great 
franchise companies in technology were the result of an entrepreneur recognizing an inflection point in technology, mm -hmm. which allowed them to build a new kind of product. The idea that without change, there's seldom opportunity. Right. And so this inflection point, the observation of the inflection point led to the creation of a new kind of product. And then the question was, was there a market that wanted that product? So the exact opposite. Instead of starting with a market and finding a product, mm -hmm. you started with a product to find a market. Mm -hmm. That required a, a market-sensitive technologist. Yep. Unfortunately, there weren't very many women who were interested in doing Tell that. Tell me about it. I was an MIT undergraduate. It was a miserable How many experience. women were in your class? Very few. <laughs> so yeah. uh, fortunately, I think that's changing, yeah. number one. And, and as the world has moved to software, that, act, that shift, yeah. I think, is changing, yeah. fortunately, at a very, very rapid rate. Mm -hmm. So more women are in a position to be able to do that. Yeah. And I'll just uh, give a shout out to our someone in our our network, Josh Koppelman, who has written on this and has recognized an arbitrage opportunity, which is, hey, uh, if you if you are willing to be agnostic, truly agnostic, you and and really shelf your biases, you have amazing opportunities as a venture capitalist. And so, you know, I think that's that's uh, well, right now. Yeah. Venture capital is all about momentum. Yeah. If you have momentum in the market, remember I said they outsourced the seed funding to an angel, right. and now what they're looking for are products that are growing exponentially organically. Mm -hmm. They don't care if you're black, blue, orange, or red. All they care about is, does the product have momentum? Yeah, green is their favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe today. <laughs> Let's see about tomorrow. Okay. So look, yeah. one of my partners yeah. at Merrill Pickard uh, went on to be one of the best venture capitalists of, of my era, and that was Catherine Gould. Yeah. And I owe her a huge debt of gratitude. Unfortunately, she passed away a little over a year ago. But she was spectacular. But she was a physicist by training, mm -hmm. was the original VP of marketing at Oracle, mm -hmm. then went into the executive search business. And then we brought her in to Merrill Pickard because we thought that her relationships with candidates would be unbelievably valuable. And it turns out she had amazing taste in investment. So she transitioned from focusing on recruiting to investing and built a tremendous track record. So I think the best venture capitalists have always been completely agnostic. All we care about is finding great deals. So it's, it saddens me when I hear yeah. about yeah. these stories of people taking advantage. Maybe I'm blissfully ignorant, but I never saw that go on. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, let's hope it was isolated. All right, Andy, we're going to shift gears here and talk about Wealthfront. First things first, I want to point our listeners to your website. It's just wealthfront.com. Great name. Hard to pronounce, though. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's worth it, though. I love it when you got two dictionary words. No fancy spellings, none of that Silicon Valley nonsense, just Wealthfront. Uh, all right, Andy, give us the elevator pitch. What's Wealthfront all about? Well, Wealthfront is trying to bring all of the services of high-end financial advisors uh, to the people who could never afford the minimums associated with access to those tremendous services. So that means financial planning, investment management, and even banking services. Who's your... All, th all delivered via your mobile phone. Wow. And who's the, who's the sweet spot in terms of the segment? Who's really your target customer? We're focused on people under 40 who prefer to delegate the management of their investments mm -hmm. and who don't 
who have less than a million dollars to invest. Because if you want to delegate, you typically need a million dollars to qualify to get access to a financial yeah. advisor. And if you're under 40, the odds are that you much prefer interacting through a mobile phone electronically than talking to someone. Yeah. So our clients actually tell us they pay us not to talk to them. Wow. So if we can deliver everything that a really fancy financial advisor mm -hmm. does in software, they actually prefer not talking to someone. And we think that almost all financial services represent routine tasks. And we both know computers do a better job of routine tasks than people do. Yeah. So how does the incumbent industry work? Let's say I'm a 35-year-old professional with $100,000 of investable income. Uh, well, actually, let's start with if I have a million dollars, because I want to know how the traditional industry okay. works. So just give us a quick uh, uh, description of how the traditional industry works. Well, if you have a million dollars to invest, then you qualify for a, fin uh, a registered investment advisor mm -hmm. to help you with your financial planning and to invest your money. And what's the main thing I get for that that I don't get just winging it? Well, they might help you with... Uh, figuring out how much money you need to set aside for retirement. Mm -hmm. They might help you figure out whether or not you can afford or they can teach you how to most tax effectively save for your kid's education mm -hmm. in a 529 college savings plan mm -hmm. as an example. And they might help you figure out whether or not you can afford to buy a home and how those goals interact with one another because they are in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. And then, once you have your goals uh, chosen, how do you invest the money to reach those goals? And perhaps they might provide a few other services as well, like uh, giving you the opportunity to borrow against your portfolio with a securities-based loan, which is a lot cheaper than a home equity line of credit. Perhaps they might help you with estate planning or some other things. All and right. For, and, and to do that, you need a million dollars, yep. and you, on average, pay a fee of 1% of the amount of money that's managed. All right, so I'm paying that manager about $10,000 a year for that million dollars. All right, now I'm now my 30-year-old, with a 35-year-old, let's say, to get $100,000, I have to work a little while. Okay. So, so let's say early 30s, they have $100,000 to invest. What, what does Wealthfront look like for them? Well, Wealthfront provides all of the services I just told mm -hmm. you at a minimum of $500 mm -hmm. and uh, at a fee of a quarter of a percent. Okay. So that, uh, uh, just for comparison purposes then, on a million dollars, that would be $2,500 per year. Correct. Okay, good. All right. And on the- but We also provide services that the financial advisor is not able to provide. Yeah. So say more. Actually, before we get to that, because I'm, I'm super curious about that, tell us a little bit about the onboarding process, how, you, how it is that you understand the needs of that, of that customer, given that they're not, they don't have a personal relationship with someone on the phone. Well, I think people misread what financial advisors actually learn about you. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have, uh, we started by creating, th the driver of uh, an investment portfolio should be your tolerance for risk and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how old you are or how much money you have, it's how much risk you can tolerate that drives the investment, the ideal investment mix for your portfolio. This is very well understood mm -hmm. in the Wharton Finance 
classes. And and risk in this context means something very specific, right? Which is when there's a macro downturn, when there's some fluctuation in the macro economy, how much of your investment are you going to lose? Is, yes. Yeah, how much yeah. how much volatility how much volatility there you... might be in your portfolio yeah. and your yeah. willingness to accept loss. Yeah. Because no risk, no reward. Again, you have to take risks to get the chance to make more return. And that's not right for everyone. Maximizing the risk is a very, very uncomfortable thing. Right. So we uh, worked with behavioral economists and machine learning experts to come up with a series of questions. And what we learned was that we could ask you 30 questions, only about four or five of them actually matter. Which are, well, give me an example. Well, there are two types of risk. You have a capacity, to, you have an objective capacity to take risk mm -hmm. and a subjective willingness to mm. take risk. So for example, if you have enough money saved that if compounded at a reasonable rate over time, you have well more than you need to retire, then you have the capacity to take risk. If you can't achieve those goals based on the amount of money you're likely to have, you actually don't have very much capacity to take risk, therefore you shouldn't take as much right. risk. On the subjective side, if you're a scaredy cat mm. and every time the market goes down 5%, you're gonna freak out, you don't have the willingness to take risk. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And on the opposite side, if that doesn't worry you, and maybe you even want to put more money in when the market goes down, which is unusual, but the right thing to do, mm -hmm. then you have more uh, willingness to take risk. All right. So you've, you've figured out my risk profile. So and, we started that yeah. way, but now yeah. it's gotten a lot more advanced mm -hmm. in that now we link to all of your financial accounts with mm -hmm. your permission. Mm -hmm. And based on the information we can glean from your uh, spending behavior, we can be even more precise than any financial planner or financial advisor could. Give me an example of an insight other than if I'm spending a lot of money gambling, let's say. You probably can make some inferences about that. But uh, give me some an example of what inferences you might be able to make from my financial data. Well, we can see uh, your capacity to take risk, mm -hmm. for sure. We mm -hmm. know the rate at which you're saving. Uh, I see, yeah. Uh, number two, we know we can see when you actually invest money. Mm. So there have been a number of well-known studies that have found that the traditional retail investor uh, likes to invest when the market goes, goes up and then they sell when the market goes down, right. which is the worst right. thing you could possibly do. And based on the various research studies, this costs the average investor anywhere between one and a half and 4% per year. Wow. It's tremendous. So we can tell you uh, what, uh, we can see if you're depositing into your account, mm. what your uh, money-weighted return is versus your time-weighted return. Mm. So time-weighted return looks at just the compounded return over time, independent of when you invested right. your money. And then we can look at your return that's weighted for when you actually did. Mm. So what we actually just published a blog post on this, we found that 56% of our clients who uh, have deposited at least three times into their account have a lower money-weighted return than their time-weighted return, which means they suck at timing the market. Yeah. And they would be far better served with just a recurring deposit to time to dollar cost average over time. And, and so you would make that recommendation. We would make that recommendation. Yeah. All right, so that's one cool thing you can do. Uh, tell me about some of the other cool things you can do over, say, 
I mean, I suppose the default strategy for a sophisticated investor would be five, buy five ETFs from Vanguard and just forget about right. it. Uh, so what what can you do? That actually, if you go to our website, mm -hmm. uh, you we will you can anonymously learn what the ideal portfolio would be, huh. which no other investment manager does. We'll they give away the answer. They would right? give the, because yeah. hey, you got to pay me right. before I right. tell you. Right. In our case, you can go through our questionnaire and we'll tell you the investment mix that's appropriate for your risk tolerance. And if you want, you can then buy those ETFs in your own brokerage mm -hmm. account for free mm -hmm. even. And, but that's because we're not serving the do-it-yourselfer. We're serving the person who wants to delegate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you open an account with us, you get the benefit of rebalancing, mm -hmm. which maintains your risk level. We do it in a very tax-efficient way. And we do something called tax loss harvesting. Mm. So this is something that very wealthy people have had available to them for decades that the average American has not. Right. So basically what this does is that at the end of the year, if you have some securities that are trading at a loss, some financial advisors, actually a relatively small percentage, will sell those investments to, to recognize a loss mm -hmm. that you can use to lower your taxes mm -hmm. and replace those investments with similar investments temporarily and then swap back into the original after the IRS says it's okay right. to do that. And if you did this uh, annually at the, at the end of every year, that would add about 0.6% to your annual wow. return. But we do it daily because computers, I said, are better at, at routine tasks. So if you're a financial advisor and you have 200 clients and, and they have six ETFs, but they have to reinvest the dividends and do all those things, imagine how difficult it would be mm -hmm. to look at every single tax lot yeah. for every single client every single day. Yeah. Well, computers don't care if they have 200 clients or 200 million clients, so we could do it every day. And in the last four and a half years, that by looking at daily tax loss harvesting opportunities, we've increased our clients' af annual after-tax returns by on the order of 1.8%. Wow. It's almost too good to be true. Yeah, it's quite amazing. So that's an example of how software can actually do a better job yeah. than a traditional advisor. Yeah. And, and at a much lower cost in this case. And at a much lower yeah. cost, yeah. and more importantly, at a radically lower minimum. Yeah. So, so i got to ask uh, maybe a dumb question, which is the, the, the gal with a million dollars to invest – is she also better off? Absolutely. Okay, so everybody is better well, off. Well, yeah. look, I, I think the the best in, investor in the world of a large pool of capital is named David Swenson. Mm -hmm. He manages the Yale Endowment. Mm -hmm. And I had dinner, I've known Dave for a long time because he invested in Merrill Pickard and in ah. Benchmark. And, uh, and his view was that what, uh, what we do is modeled after what the Ivy League endowments do, sure. which are the best yeah. ma managed pools of capital in the world. I'm now the chairman of the Penn Endowment yeah. Investment Committee, and I think we have about a $12 billion endowment. And it's very well managed by a former lieutenant of Dave huh. Swenson, named Peter Amon, who's just tremendous. So he made the point to me that he thought that what we do is better than all but maybe the top 10 or 15 endowments. Wow. So I think even for people with up to $50 million, on a net of fee after tax basis, we're better than anything they can find elsewhere, be it Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. Because remember, uh, we're charging three quarters of a percent less yep. on average. And then that tax loss harvesting benefit, we actually do an even higher level form for larger accounts called direct indexing, where we harvest within an index. Mm -hmm. 
So that gets you up to over 2% of additional benefit a year. You add the 2% to the three quarters of a percent fee savings, that's two and three quarters percent. Goldman Sachs is not going to get you an additional two and three quarter percent by virtue of access to their proprietary investments. But that's a hard case to be made yeah. from a marketing standpoint. And older people like talking to someone. I'm 59, and people my age, baby boomers, like the comfort of talking yeah. to someone. My kids are the exact opposite. They don't, I can't call them on the phone. I have to text them. They don't want to <laughs> talk to me. And so we're appealing to young people who literally don't want to talk to someone and who don't have an alternative if they want to delegate because they have less than a million dollars. But it's as good for someone with 50 million as $50,000. Wow. All right, folks, wealthfront.com. Check it out. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the founding. Andy, you alluded to the origin story, but I, I got to just set it up here, which is I just take one of those investments. Let's take eBay, and I take your 20% of your 30% of that return, and I quickly realize you don't have to work, and and you didn't have to work pretty early in, 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 that, in that tenure. What possibly possessed you to come out of retirement and start a consumer financial services company? This is going to sound corny, but to do a social good. All right, let's hear the story. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Uh, the only way that you can operate an equal partnership is for the people who are not willing to dedicate all of their efforts to the firm uh, must retire. Yeah. So it, you can't keep adding more and more people to slice up the pie because sure. there's not enough pie to go yeah. around. So we recognized this when we got started and we made the Blood Brothers Pact that when, because we wanted to build the best firm in the business, we knew the only way to do that was to have everyone totally engaged. And so we made an agreement that if you weren't willing to go 110%, you had to opt out. And you would retain the equity in the partnerships in which you participated, but you'd get no equity in follow-on funds, hmm. which is the norm of the industry. Yeah. Hey, I'm the founder. I deserve that out of goodwill. Wow. We don't get any of that. Yeah. We get to invest in our funds, which is very attractive, mm -hmm. but we get no sweat equity, yeah. if you will. And so I reached the point where I didn't want to work more than half time, mm -hmm. but that wasn't in the best interest of the firm. And so I was the second partner to retire yeah. of the five of us. So now all five of the founding partners have retired. So when I retired, I wanted to give back because in my wildest dreams, I never thought that I would have this kind of financial success. And so how could I give back? Well, I decided to teach at my grad school alma mater I decided to go on the board of trustees of my undergrad alma mater because without those two schools, I never would have been in the position that I am in today. Mm -hmm. My wife and I started a, a, an innovative cancer research funding initiative that I alluded to earlier. And, uh, and I was really enjoying myself. So I, I was ramping down the number of board seats that I sat on. I no longer looked at new investments. I was having a great time teaching. I'm still teaching to this day. But uh, one of my responsibilities as a Penn trustee was to sit on their investment committee. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun because I knew the people who ran these uh, investment committees at all the top universities from their investments in, in my funds. And uh, one day I was sitting in a, a meeting where the investment team talked about how they generate their outstanding returns. And it struck me that it was terribly arcane and manual and that if it were done in software, 
one could make it available broadly. Hmm. Now, this hit me because over my years as a venture capitalist, I had recruited a number of people to my portfolio companies who went on to financial success, which meant a million to $5 million. And they would then come to me for investment advice, wow. and I could never tell them to do what I do because they couldn't afford the minimums. Yeah. And that always really bothered me, yeah. that you had to have money to make money. Mm -hmm. And so here I was sitting in this meeting thinking, hey, if you automate this, you could do an 80-20 on what the premier endowments do, and, and thereby democratize access to sophisticated financial advice, which was another social good, because I was focusing all my activities on social good. So I started the company because I was compelled by the social good. Had I known how difficult it was going to be, I never would have done it. So I wow. think I was pretty naive. And, and, and you've been at it, you've been, it's taken, uh, what, nine years to be an overnight success? Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, it, seemed, it is funny because- Well, that's because the first three years didn't work and we ended up pivoting uh, into what we're doing today. Oh, interesting. Say a little bit more about that. Well, almost every successful technology company ends up succeeding at a very different plan than that which they first pursued. Yeah. And that was certainly, I mean, that was true of Google, Apple, Oracle. Name a company, the business at which they succeeded is not what they originally yeah. pursued. Yeah. And that was certainly the case for us, and we pivoted into what we're doing now in December of 2011. And fortunately, it wor it's worked really well since. And in the last five and a half years, we've attracted about, I think it's over $7.5 billion now, and it's growing at close to 100% a year. Wow. So I, I want to uh, uh, pivot a little bit. I, in the sense, I want to ask a little bit about, about your reflections on being an entrepreneur as opposed to being a venture capitalist. I, I looked up who some of your investors were, and I, I, it's not in my notes. Let's hope I got this right. I saw Andreessen Horowitz. I thought, oh, Andreessen Horowitz invested. No, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz invested. So it's nice to have friends like that. To, if you're, well, I was on their board of directors of the company they started prior to launching their firm. And so when they started their venture firm, they came to me as an advisor. Okay. So I've known those guys for a long, long time. All right. But my point is more, you're not an average entrepreneur in terms no, of your I've access to certain, <laughs> certain kinds of resources and networks. But I do wonder if you can- You know what's really actually yeah. ironic is the, the way I ended up raising money was that I was sitting on my kid's high school board mm -hmm. of directors along with- one of the former partners of Kleiner Perkins. Wow. Who's yeah. my age. Yeah. Who's fantastic, named Doug McKenzie. And Doug is an avid golfer. Uh -huh. And he said, why can't I ever get you to play golf? What's keeping you so busy? <laughs> and I told him, and he fell in love with the idea. And he said, can I invest? Oh, wow. And so a bunch yeah. of my friends who are venture capitalists ended up investing. I never thought to ask them. Yeah, But yeah. when they heard about it, they all sort of wanted to. Yeah. All right. So that now, so you're, you're, not, you're not average in any sense, but uh, and in particular around the financing. But I, I wonder if you could just reflect for a few minutes on what you've learned being an, an operator and in the trenches entrepreneur that you didn't expect, that you didn't know uh, back when you were writing the checks? Yeah. Well, the thing that I learned the most, the, the biggest surprise actually, which is really stupid given that I was in the venture business for almost 25 years, is the difference between being a CEO and being an investor is being a CEO is all consuming. Mm. So I prided myself as a venture capitalist in being very engaged with my portfolio companies. But when I would go home at night, I could turn it off. 
I could go out to dinner with my family. Right. I could play sports. I could go to events. And I could turn it off. Well, you can never turn it off yeah. as an entrepreneur. And it literally is all-consuming. I don't sleep as well anymore. I wake up in the middle of the night. I can't go back to bed because I, I face issues where I'm responsible for 150 people, right. for all of my investors. So I tell my former CEOs who I had recruited to my portfolio companies about this, and they all crack up, and they said, what did you think? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really naive of me. Yeah. If you knew what you knew now, would you have t approached it differently? Would you have stepped in and said, I want to be the founder and CEO, or would you have taken some other path? I, I might not have started the company had ah. I known how all-consuming yeah. it was. But no, I'm, I'm really happy with the path. I think there are certain mistakes that I made. There are certain things that I did that were not consistent with what I teach in my product market fit class, and for that, I'm very upset with myself. Yeah. But, but generally speaking, I've been very fortunate. All right. You got 30 seconds to tell me what the biggest idea in the class is now. Like, you're still teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what, what are the big ideas? I, we just have about a minute, but what are the big in, ideas? In my product market yeah. fit class? Yeah. Well, that execution doesn't matter to a startup. That's the fundamental premise. Oh, I can't believe we're going to end the show on that statement because we got to do another show. To if the dogs want to eat the dog food, it doesn't matter how bad your execution is, you're going to succeed. Wow. Conversely, if you're great at execution but nobody wants to buy your product, you're going to fail. All right. Well, that's the better way to leave the show. So that's an awesome bit of wisdom. Thanks very much, Andy. And it's an amazing story. All of the chapters are super interesting. And thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. All right. You can visit Wealthfront online at wealthfront. Just the word wealth and the word, word front. Put them together, dot com. And to keep up with Andy, you can follow him on Twitter, A. Ratcliffe. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.